Welcome to Revenue Harvest, a podcast about the fundamentals of sales leadership. Did you know most sales teams don't hit their sales targets and you can't afford to miss yours? This podcast will give you the answer to questions that will help you lead your team better, consistently exceed your sales targets, and make the most of your career. I'm your host, Nigel Green, and the whole idea behind these conversations is to learn from people who can make you a better sales leader. Let's get started. Andy, how you doing? Good. Good to meet you, Nigel. Yeah, it's nice to meet you. So, uh, Tom Critchlow, if you're listening, thank you. A couple of weeks ago, Tom pinged me and said, have you read this strategic narrative stuff from Andy Raskin? And I said, no. And I immediately jumped into Medium and started doing some research and uh, was quite amazed by the work that you've done on this this concept of the strategic narrative, right? Thank you. And you, and you say that the strategic narrative and the sales narrative really should be the same thing, but for many companies, they're not. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I think there is this concept of, uh, you know, what's the story we're going to tell to the world that every, uh, every leader, entrepreneur, you know, sales team, you know, starts has to think about. And, you know, the tradition. So the first question is like, wh- where are we going to write this thing down? Like, in what form are we going to craft it and align it and, and, and make, see if it works? And the traditional answer to this question is we're going to put it in a place that the world doesn't see. So we're going to put it in some kind of like positioning template or uh, some kind of internal, I don't know, story presentation and in my experience, like those, that, that approach would break down because, well, for a few reasons, one, the whole ideas of those is that it's, it's a kind of like DNA asset. People are going to go back to it all the time to like, I'm going to go back and look at that thing. If I need to, you know, do a sales pitch, I'll go look at this thing. What, what are the things I should be saying? Uh, and then I'll go and then I'll say those things. Um, and I think people forget to go back, you know, after a while, like usually it's held in, I don't know, marketing or uh, some executive has it and it kind of, it kind of gets forgotten about. Uh, the other thing is it's not, those things are usually not in the form that like someone can really go and talk to someone. Usually they're, oh, I don't know, here's all our target personas and here's the problem they have and here's like the message for them and um, I think it's hard to just take these like snippets of messages and and construct a real pitch to somebody. So when I started doing this work, I really thought hard, like what is the asset that we should use to uh, to define the story that everyone's telling? And I came to the sales deck that the sales deck is really the the, the sales pitch is really the core narrative of the company. It's the core narrative, not only for selling, but it's the core narrative for like for recruiting. Uh, you know, why, why do I want to join this company? Is, you know, what are they doing? Why? <laughs> it's the core narrative, of course, for investors. I mean, who's going to who are the investors going to first call when they're doing due diligence? They're going to call customers and ask, like, why are you buying this thing? So they want to know that, too. So, yes, I see the sales narrative as is the strategic narrative. Uh and is is the primary story that we're all telling. So there are probably people listening here, sales leaders listening here, uh, executives listening, and they're pointing the fingers at each other. So I can I can think of some CEOs that are saying, "Well, it's the sales 
leaders' responsibility to work with marketing and come up with a sales narrative. And I can, I've worked with sales leaders that say, you know, good luck getting my CEO to come on a sales call or participate in any of this voice stuff. You know, we've got a one, three and five year plan that he built uh, in, in the office with the, private equity group that no one's seen. And we've got all this aspirational uh, mission vision language that could be the Dunder Mifflin mission statement. Um, so how do you bridge that gap? Yeah, so I don't even try. Um, so my my feeling about this is this is CEO work. So this strategic narrative, I, I don't just call it strategic uh, because, you know, to make it sound better, I really believe like this is the strategy, like this narrative is the articulation of strategy. Uh, yes, fine to have these goals like you're talking about. And, you know, uh, w w what's our goal for the year and our goal for five years? Great. But that's not a that that that's not going to really tell people on a day to day basis. Like, how do I you know, I have to make this decision in the moment. Like, what do I do? I think that that is really CEO work. And yeah, there's probably a minority of CEOs who see it this way. Uh, and I've been lucky enough that there are enough <laughs> that this has been a, a, a way for me to make a living. Um, and uh, but but yeah, I'll, I'll often, you know, when I first started doing this work, you know, I'd, I'd hear from like marketing VP or sales leader say, hey, you know, really love your stuff uh, that you're writing about strategic narrative. I want to hire you to, uh, to do it for our company. Our CEO will, you know, he'll be involved or, you know, she'll be looking at it, but, uh, you know, I'll be leading it. And at the beginning, I would accept those projects. And after a while, I looked and like, which were the projects that were really good? Like the result was really good where the, 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 I saw the the story like just powering everything they were doing. It was always where the CEO was really leading it. And so eventually I just stopped accepting the work unless it was the CEO who was reaching out to me and uh, and saying they wanted to do this. I mean, the marketing leader, sales leader, they play a big role in my projects as well. But the CEO is the one who's like in the trenches with me, building it, uh, shaping it. And then the rest of the team is kind of giving their helping to kind of guide that that CEO. So in the world of like corporate messaging and, and storytelling, you know, you and I, before we hit record, talked about my experience with, at StoryBrand. And we talked about some other individuals that are in this storytelling space. And uh, a lot of it seems to be, you know originated or, or some kind of spinoff of Joseph Campbell's work of, of the hero's journey and, and that type of arc. And what's interesting, and, and I tend to be pulled to about your work, is it has really nothing to do with uh, the customer. It has everything to do with where the market's going and the reality that in, in every big strategic decision or every big shift in the market, there are winners and losers. Can you Can you say more about that? Yeah, well, you raised a couple of different points. All this stuff goes back to Campbell. But first of all, I found that when I talked about Campbell and stuff like that, I don't know, it just, it just felt kind of geeky to me. <laughs> and I didn't, it, I, I didn't feel like it really resonated. Um, the other thing is, I actually don't uh, see what I do as part of this is like epic storytelling. You know, 
a pitch is not a three x screenplay. We are not um, we are not talking about the journey of a character, a specific character over time in any literal way, right? Um, I I would argue I would push back and say the strategic narrative that I talk about is is I do think it's about the customer, but it's not it's not specifically about the customer. So what I mean by that is. I really think about it less about than epic storytelling, more like kind of journalism. So, you know, if you look at the great strategic narratives, they all have this structure, which is there was an old game that used to be a great game that was the way to win in the world. And now there's a new game. And look, all the winners are starting to play this new game. The classic one that that I wrote about, and well, the, the real classic one was Mark Benioff in 2000, telling the world software is over, and there's this new game called the cloud. That story, I mean, it is about the customer in a, in a very real sense, but <clears throat> it's really presenting to the customer what I would call news. It's saying, hey. In, in a very in a very boiled down simple model, hey the 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 old game is over. There's a new game <laughs> that the winners are playing. When I see this stuff about like epic storytelling, like make your customer the hero, uh, what that feels to me is very much like the old. It's basically like your customer has a problem, you have the solution. It's that old. It's it's the same, you know, pr- problem solution framework, just kind of put in terms of movies. And what I think is, and and that's fine. Like maybe if that's working for you, like do it. Um, what I see the great CEOs who are building, you know, what people call categories, or you know, I think is maybe better described as like movements and you know, real brand differentiation. They're really pitching this news, this news about this shift in the world. And that's, you know, when that resonates with CEOs, that's when they'll call me and, you know, uh, and, and it'll be a fertile territory for us to engage. So what's really interesting about that is uh, without exception, when I talk to uh, a CEO or I talk to an investment firm about an asset, the word disruption, disintermediate, redefine, those all seem to be characteristics or, or aspirational adjectives of the company. Yet, um, if you subscribe to the heroic journey model, it, it doesn't it doesn't seem to create any space for uh, reinventing the game. Yeah, it's it's very much focused on this one, usually like persona um, or you know customer type. And what I like about the old game, new game framework is what I call strategic narrative is it really is going to change the game for everybody. And one of the things that I like to have CEOs do is say, okay, there's this old game, new game shift. And now can we, first of all, not just, Hey, we're disrupting healthcare, but literally what is the old and new? There's a lot of talk about, you know, like, Healthcare used to be a volume game. Now it's a value game. You know, there's there's a lot of these shifts that people are starting to talk about. And 
um, I think you'll see uh, you'll see healthcare companies start to to sort of start talk, you know latch on to these shifts uh, in ways that make sense for them. But when we are talking about a shift, we can then we can apply that to many different personas because usually we're talking to many different audiences, whether that's different industries, different roles. And uh, this I found is a better framework for, for doing that. So uh, the healthcare example is, is obviously very relevant for me. Uh, my, my question is, so say, say I'm a CEO and, and you've got me, you've got my attention. I'm all ears, Andy. Um, I, I want to be a part of this in-game new game. Where where do I begin the journey? Where do, where if if I had you, where would we start? And and like, are there clear stages or phases to move from the heroic to the strategic narrative? And and how do I how do I shift my mindset? Um, I, I don't even start with a heroic, uh, you know, like a that structure. I, you know, I ask the CEO to create what I call strategic narrative team, which is the CEO and and a small leadership group. Usually these are the heads of sales, marketing, product. Sometimes there's like a COO type person or a co-founder. Basically, I'm asking them to get together everybody who, people who know the inputs to the story, who like almost like a market proxy, they, they know the customer story and the people who are just super important to champion this narrative, to smell their scent on it going forward. And I take the teams through a process, usually lasts about six to eight weeks, where uh, the CEO is CEO and I are building the narrative based on the input from the team. Uh, we're also I also have the team ask customers a bunch of questions, and these questions, the interviews we do with customers, not so much like what do you love about our company, what don't you love about our company. It's more. What is changing in your world such that what we're delivering to you is so much more valuable now than it would have been, I don't know, some short time ago? And get them talking about the shift. And often, sometimes they'll literally give us the words that we use for this old game, new game, you know, shift. Language, in every case I found, they'll give some validation to one direction of maybe several we might be thinking about uh, when we look at you know lots of different customers taking together what we're hearing from them um, and then it's a matter of uh, I refine it back and forth between the CEO and the team I'm working with the CEO one-on-one -on -one, kind of weighing in uh, and then though the, the real test of it though is getting it out of the echo chamber of the team and then starting to use it in real situations. And by, by that, I really mean sales. So I think one of the big blocks for, you know, the CEO telling a story or marketing, you know, putting some new story in the company is sales. Like is sales going to take it? And so I, I, I really just go the opposite way. Let's, let's, do this first in sales, see if it works. So we're not, we're not like rolling it out to the whole sales team, but you know, maybe the CEO or the head of sales or one or two sales reps are, are trying it. And, you know, is it working? And, uh, and, and how can we make it better? We usually learn a lot from <laughs> these, uh, these initial sales calls. And uh, one CEO uh, just, I, I was 
asking her, like, how did you know it was working? And she said, I knew it was working when I felt like a therapist. Like I would, I would say this, you know, Hey, there's an old game and there's new game and look at the winners. And they would say, yes, let me tell you how this is playing out in my company. And, you know, salespeople talk about discovery. And one way to do discovery is to, you know, ask, just ask the questions. What are your pains? What are your problems? Uh, this is a different approach. Well, it's, it can be, you know, in comp in complement with that. I find that it often will, will get even deeper stuff because we're, we're not specifically asking them. We're just kind of empathizing with them. You know, they're, they're saying, yes, you're, you're telling my story and, uh, let me, and, and I trust you because of that. And so I'm going to tell you now what's really going on. And isn't this what we want? You said uh, you, you do a lot of diligence around the inputs six to eight weeks. How does a team know when it's ready to take it out of the echo chamber and begin testing it? Usually uh, there's a point when I actually, I ask the CEO, I say, hey, are we ready? Are we ready to, to take this out into the world? And uh, and usually it, it's it's clear. And if and, and we get to that point and that's when we start doing it. And usually it's after a few weeks. How does the, you know, you said it wasn't the whole sales team, but you, you self-selected uh, a couple of groups or, or individuals. How do they typically respond when they first see and hear this? Well, sometimes it's literally the CEO doing the calls, him or herself. Uh, sometimes it's the sales leader. So, so they've kind of like drank my Kool-Aid in the, in like the, the, you know, that's our working sessions together. Uh, but yeah, sometimes, uh, they'll, they'll have one of their, you know, more junior people come and start doing the sales calls. And I usually do a training with that person to, cause the structure of this is to totally different from the structure of a typical deck. Like the structure of a typical deck is, let me tell you, uh, you probably want to know about how great we are. So let me tell you about all our logos. Let me tell you about all investors. Uh, let me tell you about um, uh, whatever, a bunch of great stuff about us. So you, you know, so the idea is like build credibility. And then I'm going to tell you what your problem is. You know, here's your problem. And then I'm going to tell you what our solution is. And I might tell you also like why it's better than all the other solutions. And so this is a very different approach. It's Hey, here's the change in the world. <laughs> As you said, then look, all the winners, they're all on board with this, you know, this, you know, playing this new game, this new approach to the world. Uh, and look, all, and look, and, and the old, here's why the old game is a, is a road to ruin. And, you know, by this point, we should be having people tell us, you know, shaking their heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even opening up about what's happening. And so uh, I'll usually do a session with if it's a if it's a more junior person who hasn't been part of that work a session with them and the CEO and sometimes the sales leader to have those people present uh, to to that person uh, uh, and explain how they, they want to use that deck uh, in this way. So there are some really credible companies that have worked with you and uh, a couple that um, are household names, a lot of them are, what are the implications? I mean, you, you talk about in, in some of your work that the notion of, of getting this strategic narrative right can 
fundamentally change the valuation of a company? Yeah, I mean, what is the valuation of the company aside from that? I mean, unless I mean, it's of course it's there's there's numbers that come out, uh, but your you know your expectations of growth, which is really you know the the fundamental factor in evaluation, that's all story, and you know I think. A lot of early stage founders tell me that this approach has been really helpful with them with VCs. Uh, and if you think about it, what are VCs looking for? They're looking for, as you said, like disruptive companies. And when you present to them like, hey, uh, here's our great stuff. Here's our great idea. What's the one of the first things they're going to think about? They're going to think, well, why isn't anyone else doing this? Uh, and they're going to have this doubt. And if you, but if you start with this shift in the world, then you're kind of giving them the answer to that. You're saying, Hey, the world was like this, but now it's becoming like this. You're, you're, you're helping them like smell the opportunity the way that you did, uh, when you first start starting the company. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the, the, the companies, uh, you know, some companies that have, that I write about or some I've worked with uh, that, that have done this really well. So in the sales area, Gong. Uh, Gong, so this company, they've, they've done a lot of incredible work on uh, what, what they would call category creation, uh, this thing around revenue intelligence. Uh, and the CEO will, will say, like, a lot of this was inspired by some work we did where it was – we, we talked about like, what is this shift? And, and the way that he defined it is goodbye opinions, hello reality. Uh, so there was an old world where the uh, sales organizations were run on opinions and that was a great game. That was, that worked great for a long time, but now we're, we're going to move to this other world where it's going to be based on a reality view. And, um, you know, that company, they have competitors who are doing kind of similar stuff, but their valuation is many X, the competitors. And I wouldn't say, I don't know if that's only the, the way they've been telling the story, but um, so I have a podcast of my own. I actually interviewed Amit uh, Bendoff um, about that work and uh, and about the role it plays in the company. And uh, I think he would say that that it's 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 a, a huge part of that valuation. Um, he also told me that that opinions to reality thing is like the filter that everybody uses at the company for everything, like even for product decisions. Like, is it about opinions? Because they get a lot of requests from sales teams to you know do uh, to do different features, and he was like, "Well, is it opinions or is it getting us closer to a view of reality?" And that's the because the simple filter they can use for everything. So let's go back to the healthcare example, uh, where you talked about this uh, this shift in the world away from fee for service to value based care. And there are a lot of healthcare companies, service providers, product makers, trying to participate in this shift. Some of the challenges that that I'm seeing is that. Uh, 
we seem to be in some categories right in the middle of the shift where sometimes it's easier to run back to the old world than it is to make the leap to the new world. How, how, do you see that? And how do you, how do you work around that in your work? Yeah, I, I love uh, the way you put it like this, this, this uh, tendency to run back. I, I love that. And I really, that, that is why also I think um, I, I like this term movement uh, as opposed to category, right? Movement, what we're really saying is, hey, there is this new, uh, th- there's, there's this new approach, this new ideology, and the winners are, are, and this train has left the station and the winners are on it and, or it's leaving the station. Do you want to be on it or not? And this, you know, a lot of sales leaders and CEOs, uh, when they approach me, they, they say, hey, you know, we're doing great, but I'm not feeling like the urgency in the buyer. And I think this is what it comes down to. Like, if we're just talking to them about, hey, you have a problem, uh, we can make you a hero. This is, uh, this is not, there's no urgency there. Uh, the, the, I mean, unless the, unless the person is really like, like in the emergency room, like if their problem is so, so acute, and this is basically the early adopters, right? The early adopters, they don't really need a story. They, they, they see it. Um, it's the mainstream folks where they, they don't see the story and we are calling it early every time. <laughs> So that that I said the value, the sorry, volume to value. That that's just one possible way to do it, and and you could even argue that's kind of old now. Like it's I don't know, maybe maybe people talking about that too much. Maybe that's not even uh, fertile territory for a story anymore. Uh, there actually is a healthcare company I'm working with where they considered that and they actually threw it out for that reason. It was like too big, too or even and even like sort of everyone's talking about that, so it's not differentiating enough. But however you nail that shift, it, it's always going to be controversial. Uh, and it's controversial because of what you said, Nigel. There's this clinging to the status quo. And that is the, um, you know, what the behavioral economists call the loss aversion. There is this, um, you know, uh, why jump on this train and this new ideology and play this new game if the old one is, you know, you're sort of doing okay. This actually is a place where I do get some inspiration for movies. So, you know, in Star Wars, when Obi-Wan comes to Luke and says, hey, uh, let's go, you know, Luke has been bellyaching the whole time about he wants to go have adventures and all this kind of stuff. So Obi-Wan comes to him and he says, hey, okay, uh, there's this adventure I want to take you on. Uh, let's go. And do you remember what Luke says? No. He says no. He says, mm, you know, it's getting kind of late. Um, got to go home. I got some chores to do. My parents are going to be, you know, foster parents can be worried. He's clinging to that status quo. And, you know, this this is what the, what the you know, the, Joseph Campbell called refusal of the call. Like he's, he's just, why go, right? And so we need to show the stakes. And this is why we have to talk about the winners and the losers. We have to say like, hey, the winners are doing this. And we have to say, look, isn't it clear? Like 
<clears throat> excuse me, um, great example of this uh, one I, I write about a lot is uh, this company called Zwara. Zwara does like subscription billing. They, they have a platform for companies doing subscription billing. And, and back in 2015 or even earlier, when not too many people were doing subscriptions, it was just starting kind of, they start telling this story about we've, we're moving into a subscription economy, uh, which is, as you said, like an early, they're telling this early, like they're going to companies like Ford and saying, hey, everyone's going to be subscribing to your cars soon. <laughs> and uh, and you can imagine the people at Ford like, what? <laughs> and so, so Zora showed like, hey, look at all the companies that are that are are thriving. If in terms of like the incumbents, if they haven't shifted from selling stuff to selling services, like they're dead. <laughs> like, you know, the IBMs of the world, and the HPs, if and look at all the native, all, all the new stars, like the unicorns, like Uber, Airbnb, uh, Box, uh, Dropbox. These companies are all natively subscription companies. So they're making this argument that like the winners are doing this. And then they're showing like, hey. And at the same time, there's this die-off of companies in the Fortune 500, and it's accelerating. And they show stats about this, and they're like, "Hey, look, you know, the message is clear. Like, if you are, if you're going to stay playing that old game, you're dead." And so it's the stakes that uh, it's making it about life and death that get people to move. Why does Luke go eventually? Because the Empire kills his parents and. Uh, now he has no choice. He really like, and I think it's kind of implied they're they're coming after him, and so he's probably going to be dead. Uh, but he has this other shot uh, with with Obi Wan, so he goes. Sometimes I see what I would characterize as a trap, in that the the company is flirting with this new world, but yet they've built in a safety net of retreat, and their sales team. Maybe it's they, they think of it in their mind that it's a, a down offer or it, it's some other way in which to create a, a, an opportunity for the customer to transact with them. But it, it it's not this burn the boat mentality. And so they end up losing in the end. Hmm. Do you ever see that? Um, I guess I don't see that. Uh, and here's why I think it so it has to be led by the CEO. So if the CEO leads it and like everybody is screaming about this shift, I think that salesperson has no choice. Uh, and, and, and in fact, I, when I first learned about that as war, a sales pitch, the way I learned about it was I was working with a team. I was already doing this work, kind of working on, uh, you know, messaging and stuff with, with, leadership teams. And I was talking about this approach that I was starting to, to, um, to use. And one the sales leader had been at Zwara and he said, Hey, you know, this really sounds like what we used to do at Zwara. And he shared me, share with me the pitch deck. Um, and what he told me was it was the greatest situation he had ever had as a salesperson because he said the, the the story about this shift from selling things to subscription, so you know, outright ownership, you know, people wanting to own things to people wanting to kind of 
have the benefits of those things without the owning of those things. The CEO's telling this story. Marketing's telling this story. Um, the CEO's telling it on like every time he goes on TV, so he would tell it on like Mad Money. And he said, for me as a salesperson, that's like air cover. And then I would just go down and knock down deals. Mm. And this is, I think, the way that it that it ideally works. I'm imagining there are some folks that are going to listen to this, Andy, and say, you know, Nigel, Andy, when I think about what I'm offering in the market, I don't know how to map it to a big shift. What do you say to them? Yeah, and that's that's usually uh, I hear that a lot, and I think there always is one. So I have this. <laughs> I just have a theory that um, I haven't I haven't found one yet where it's not it can't be done. Um, so what questions and, do I need to think about if I feel like that's me? Like how yeah. how do I begin to tease that out? Yeah, well, like I said, I, uh, where. Where's the best place to get this? Uh, talking to Andy in a in a you know in a room? Uh, no, who who might we best get it from? Customers. Uh, these are the people who you know they bought it because they saw it as as urgent. And why did they see it as urgent? Something must have been happening in their life, right? Um, and so. I actually wrote a post. It's called "Why Great Pitches Come from Customers," and it includes five questions that I ask, uh, or I have the teams ask their customers when I'm working with them. And uh, the first question is, the first question I like to ask is, "How do we change your life?" And and they'll and let's they'll say something. This is kind of them summing it all up, right? Um, and then the second question is the one I I mentioned earlier, which is. Well, what has changed in your world such that whatever you just said, that how we change your life, that that's more valuable to you now than some whatever, than, than if we could have done that some short time ago? How has the world changed? And that's where we usually will start to hear uh, the answer to that, to, to the question. Let's talk about this for a second. The, um, you, you talked about the Zor example. For those that are curious, you can actually get a copy of this uh, this deck, the the best sales deck ever. You can go to Zor, and I think they've got it gated now. If you give them their email address, you can download the PDF. They they're 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 all over it. So yeah, they, they, so that post is like five years old now, and they um, they put that up almost immediately, and <clears throat> they told me, excuse me, it was like a blessing and a curse because. It got them like hundreds of thousands of leads at the same time. You know, a lot of those are just people who are looking to to build a great deck and not interested in uh, their subscription software. Uh, but yes, they, I made it clear actually in my post that I reconstructed their pitch. I didn't share the actual pitch that that salesperson gave me because I, I didn't want to do that. I reconstructed it from some of their public slides. Again, like you're telling the same story everywhere. And so, uh, and so what they put up there is like a, basically my reconstructed thing. Um, and that, but, but it's, you can learn pretty much the same thing from that that you could learn from the actual one that I, that I built it from. So, uh, yeah, I think it's very, very educational. There's something that stands out about this deck that, um, is really 
different from, from a lot of other decks too. Not only is it that it talks about a big shift, the winners and losers, and then cites, uh, like you said, journalism, it just cites empirical evidence of the shift. Uh, but again, I think even if you do that, there's this trap for it to read like a newspaper and be so text heavy and you lose me. And if you, if you look at this deck, I mean, there's no more than 10 words on a slide. How, how do I, how do you pull that off? You know, that's another big, big move you've got to make uh, as a company. There's so many things to say here. Um, you know, first of all, I think every slide, so now we're getting into slide craft versus kind of like, I guess, narrative, but, uh, I think everybody who's a, you know, probably Nancy Duarte would say this or whoever, like, you know, be very clear what the idea is you want to express on that slide, right? Um, so, and the title of the slide should be that, that takeaway. So one thing I see a lot is we'll say like, <clears throat> see a slide, it'll say like, um, what customers are saying will be the title. And then there'll be like five quotes. And so that's, you're asking the person to do a lot of work. You're asking a viewer to do a lot of work to, to figure out the takeaway of that slide. Never make them do any work. So always pull out the the takeaway. So this would be like, I don't know, customers say they love us because X. I don't know. I'm, it's, it's an example. Another example is in investor decks. Uh, sometimes they'll be just labeled the team. <laughs> and then it's up to you to do a lot of work. The investor to do a lot of work like, well, who are these people? And, you know, what, what should I, what should I take away about them? I mean, give them something like, uh, you know, you know, a combined 150 years in the healthcare space or something like, you know, as the takeaway, give them one takeaway. Right. And then once you've done that, I mean, I think then you can start to say, well, what what else really does need to be on this slide? Uh, and maybe not much <laughs> because, uh, you know, it, once you have that, that, that line, well, what's the minimum amount of stuff you need to support it? Not all the Zora slides have just 10 words. Some of them have more, uh, but some of them are, are very, very sparse. Uh, and part of that too is getting used to not not feeling like you have to dwell on slides uh, for a long time. Some slides you could present them and move on in three seconds, uh, and that's fine. You're presenting the idea, and then you're probably in the next slides going to explain that idea uh, rather than sort of sitting on each slide. But yes, uh, that slide deck, I'm not a designer. I don't design decks and I'm, I'm, that's not my area of expertise, but I think a lot of people did take inspiration from that one because it is so sparse. Uh, it's just got these full bleed images and, and very little text, like you said. Let's, let's talk about, uh, as we're, as we're kind of wrapping this up, but this is a question that I've been really wanting to, to ask you and, there, with each passing day, you know, that we're recording this at the end of May in, in 2021, the world is moving back into a more whatever it's going to be, right? And I, I wonder, I, I see in my work, and I wonder if it's true in other people's work, there's this um, 
nostalgia and almost this this um, longing that what what the business experience from a result and a sentiment perspective is immediately going to just return back to the way it was for a lot of companies and and I try to to challenge them that when you have black swan events like that sentiment in the market and the customer fundamentally shifts and I I wonder the question is and I know I'm taking a while to set it up has there ever been in our recent history a more appropriate time to use sentiment to sh- to reshape strategic narrative well, what do you mean by sentiment here? well so l- let's say so for like real example in my work I, I I have sales leaders that say well now that we're getting vaccines and the world's opening up uh, and, and our reps feel safe traveling, we're going to get back out on the road. And and I challenge them to say, but your customer doesn't even have an office anymore. They surrendered the lease. How's that going to work? Or maybe they don't want you there anymore because a decision maker <laughs> is working from home and has it in his contract that he doesn't have to go to the office anymore. Yeah. And And so I wonder how much of that uh, and even in, if you take the Zor example of like this move to subscription base, I mean, when you look at the big companies that do subscription based models and how everything just exploded with delivery now. I mean, that, that's not going away. Like it's not going to go back just because people are, have vaccinated. It's a huge shift in sentiment. So how do you, how do you account for that? And, and does it mean that maybe everyone ought to rethink strategic narrative? Hmm. Well, COVID, which is the event, you know, that we're talking about, um, hopefully will, hopefully things will, you know, hopefully COVID itself will not be an issue uh, at some time in the, in the short future. And, and we seem to be on the road to that, at least in the United States and in other countries, it's persisting and, and still a very big issue. Um, but hopefully around the world, it will not be an issue uh, in the way it has been. Um, and so I think we don't want to necessarily build the strategic narrative around COVID, you know, like, like to say, like, the world has shifted because of COVID, like there was a pre COVID and there's a now there's COVID like, uh, that story, I think will be old fast, hopefully, <laughs> will be old fast. But what we're seeing when I work with teams, because this is obviously with every industry, I work with teams in so many different industries and COVID is the, the huge, this huge, as you said, sort of uh, event in all of them. What I find in most of them is COVID is like an, was an accelerant. It was a catalyst of a shift that was already happening uh, that, you could you you could you could already see happening and COVID only accelerated it and this is the way that I even you know Gong t- talks about it this way like you know, opinions to reality was was a shift they were talking about before COVID but and and part of this is because hey now you have these sales calls recorded you have them as data that you can mine with artificial intelligence or whatever. And COVID has just accelerated that because obviously now all the sales interactions are recorded or, or a much larger share of them or can be recorded. And so uh, the way I like to think about this is 
you know, th th there are always shifts happening that we can build this, the narrative around. And co an event like COVID is, is, is a catalyst for whatever that shift is. But it's not unless we're literally working like in the, you know, COVID vaccine space or something. Um, it's, it's not usually. It's the not the shift around. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one, one question I've been, I don't ask this of every guest, but certainly you're someone that I, I really love the way you think. So I want to know, what do you read? <laughs> um, my favorite book that's related to this stuff, um, I've already actually borrowed concepts from it in our conversation here without crediting him. So I, I would like to do it is, uh, is Chris Voss's never split the difference. Uh, things, you know, he talks about this idea of gaining trust through essentially summarizing the captor's story back to them and getting a that's right. And isn't that what we're talking about with the strategic narrative? We're saying, hey, there's this shift in the world. It's creating stakes. And we're looking for them to say, yeah, that's right. And, and that's, and we're looking to gain trust this way and then to have them to kind of open up to us. Uh, that book is just hugely influential to me uh, as, you know, selling in my own, uh, for my own practice and also uh, in the way that I think about the role of strategic narrative and, and what CEOs are really doing when they're using it. Yeah, I, I love that book, uh, particularly with in sales teams of handling uh, objections from a customer, particularly around pricing concessions and delays you know chris talks about uh, putting the work back on the terrorist to say how am i supposed to do that right right, right. yeah so that's that's one of my, I, I love chris for that so um anything else that um you're reading now that relevant to this or not hmm uh well yeah i'll tell you about a book that i'm reading um this book is called, it's called Soul Without Shame. It's not really related to this, but it's, um, it's all about the voice in your head and how to, um, <clears throat> how to start, you know, this, we, we all have this voice in our head and, and uh, a lot of us, it kind of, it attacks us. Like we use it to attack ourselves. Like when we have like imposter syndrome or, you know, whatever, uh, it just kind of shows up in lots of different ways. And this is a book about kind of listening, starting to like transcribe it. Like, what's it saying? What What is it literally like? Whose voice is it? Was it, you know, one of your parents' voices when you were growing up? Or was it uh, someone else, uh, you know, that you kind of incorporated for safety when you were a kid, but then it's sort of like you don't really need it anymore? And, uh, and to kind of like play with it. And I, I found... Um, you know, when I start these, when I start this, these projects with CEOs, I, all the questions you've said, like, when, what is the shift? Like, I don't know what the shift or, or like, or they'll be like, Hey Andy, we've been working on this for two years. <laughs> like what we're going to say to the market. And, uh, we haven't been able to figure it out. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm, how am I going to do this? They've been, <laughs> you know, they've been working on this for a couple of years. And so I, I can get really, uh, like the, I can put the pressure on myself a lot and get really scared about it. And I found this book to be just really helpful with uh, dealing with pressure and, uh, and, and lightening, lightening it up for myself. 
Well, Andy, thanks for joining me today. If, uh, if someone's listening to this and wants to find you, what's the, where would you point them? How do we find Andy? Um, one best place is LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, just look me up, Andy Raskin. Uh, I am usually posting about stuff. Often I'm posting about, you know, anonymously, but about things I've learned with teams I'm working with. Uh, and then my website is andyraskin.com. All right, Andy, thank you so much. Yeah, great talking with you, Nigel. Music from this episode is from my good buddy, Justin Adams. You can listen to Justin's music at Spotify or Apple Music. Thank you, Justin, for the music. And thank you for checking out another episode of The Revenue Harvest.